0: Greetings, friends. I'm Will Nicholas from Never Odd or Even, and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast, exploring faith and fiction.
1: Deep Space Nine. It's a wonderful
0: reflective moment. Flame
1: the Dark. True Salt Wave. Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine going on, why is this being highlighted? That itself is another interesting question, isn't
0: it? I think I'm starting to get why this science fiction thing is
1: uh,
0: <laughs> uh, is so attractive. You'll, you'll make a sci-fi fan out of me here. Greetings, friends. This is Will Nicholas and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the episode Meridian, which is episode eight of season three, and I'll give you the synopsis as we usually do. Uh, Dax falls in love with one of the residents of a multidimensional planet, while on DS9, an alien requests a holosuite program of Cura from Quark. This episode has an A and a B story and uh, provides us with the opportunity to have a look at a wide range of different issues um, in terms of theology and science fiction. And very excitingly for me, uh, I have with me today to work through this episode, uh, James McGrath, uh, who is a, uh, a author of uh, many books on science fiction and theology, uh, including Theology and Science Fiction and Time and Relative Dimensions in Faith, and recently uh, has released uh, a, a, a book called What Jesus Learned from Women, uh, which is a, a bit of a, a fanfic approach, I think, to uh, to uh, the, the life of Jesus. Uh, welcome to the episode today, James. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, as I um, tend to do with uh, first-time guests, I'm going to ask you an, the icebreaker questions. Uh, just gives the, uh, the, the fans out there an opportunity to uh, get to know you a little bit uh, and explore um, uh, your experience and gives them some context. So the first question I ask is, uh, when did you first uh, start watching Deep Space Nine?
1: And I can't, I can't put a finger on the date. I think it's pretty much as soon as it came out. Uh, I don't remember when I first saw the original series, uh, in case anyone thinks otherwise. I'm not quite old enough to have seen it when it first aired, but reruns were on from my earliest memory. And some of my earliest memories are not just uh, seeing episodes of the original series of Star Trek, but also of having those really much, much larger action figures than you had if you were a Star Wars fan Uh, Of course, I had both. I'm I'm sort of one of these uh, eclectic sorts of uh, theological types and one of these eclectic sort of fandom types, as uh, I think was hinted at in the fact that I've written about Doctor Who and other things and not just about Star Trek. So Deep Space Nine, for me, goes back, I think, as far as the series itself goes.
0: Fantastic. Um, and so uh, do you have a favorite character, I mean, in Deep Space Nine or, or uh, I mean, you've mentioned another a number of other universes. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to go as broadly into the the, the, the universes as possible.
1: Yes. Well, if, if one gets into, like, favorite Doctor and other things, it, it can get very distracting. I will say that my favorite captain or commander for a long time was in fact, Benjamin Sisko. I've become quite enamored though, with uh, the depiction of captain Pike on star Trek uh, discovery. And some of that is the way the character is portrayed, but some of it is probably the fact that he mentions at one point that uh, his father taught both comparative religion and science. And that was part of his upbringing. And he, he shares some thoughts on that show that are quite theological in character in interesting ways. And so now I'm a bit torn. Uh, one thing, though, that uh, Avery Brooks, who depicted Benjamin Sisko on uh, Deep Space Nine, has as an advantage, though, is that he also narrated some uh, documentaries about archaeology and the Bible. And so uh, he gets in through my biblical studies uh, channels, as well as my science fiction fandom, and so uh, has an extra inroad and influence on me. Uh, and it's amazing how
0: difficult that question becomes as the galaxies and universe expand and expand and expand mm-hmm. around us. Uh, and it, it's mm-hmm. uh, I, I often marvel at the idea that, you know, when I was in my in my teens and early 20s, there wasn't very much in terms of serial science fiction around. There was, mm-hmm. you know, a number of movies that kind of came out in, in those decades. But, but today, you know, you, you get on to to Netflix and Prime and Disney and you've got Marvel and Star Trek and Star Wars and The Mandalorian in Star Wars and mm. uh, and so many episodes yeah. of, of TV in science fiction. In particular, I mean, my favourite area of science fiction is time. I love time travel and, and messing around with time travel. So. Yeah, so that's wonderful. Well, look, let's get into the episode. Um, I'm certain that we'll have lots of opportunity to talk about um, uh, our theories and thoughts around um, Star Trek and science fiction and theology as we go. Um, but we'll use the um, the episode Meridian as as a vehicle for this one. Uh, unfortunately, um, uh, only a five point seven on IMDb, um, and and self confessed in the write up from. The, the directors, writers and crew, not their favourite episode. Uh, and, in fact, um, uh, one said that whenever anyone asks about this episode, they prefer not to talk about it. Um, but even so, some so there are some gems um, in, in this episode. Uh, James, what jumped out
1: for you uh, as you were watching this again recently? Well, I'll start with the confession that when you said Meridian, I was like, which one is that? At season three, it's like, it introduces the Defiant. It there's you know, There are elements with, you know, the Jem'Hadar and finding out sort of Odo's backstory and the Dominion. And there's so many things in there that are just fascinating. And in the midst of that, I think Meridian, even if it were perhaps a more compelling and memorable episode than it is in the minds of some fans, uh, it still would probably struggle to... Uh, stand out in that crowd, because it really is a season that has a lot of memorable moments. But when you when you said which episode it was, I found myself thinking, have I seen this one? I must have. I know I did, but w- what were the details? Because it had been a while. And it certainly wasn't one that I had watched multiple times. But watching it, I was really struck by uh, a number of aspects, uh, not all of them entirely positive. But there there is this Sort of narrative coherence, even as there are separate stories taking place in different locations and very different stories. I think there are some interesting themes that have some theological re- resonances uh, from my perspective that are woven throughout the episode, including with you know, some some elements of symbolism that I think are interesting there from from the very start of the episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I as I was looking at it at first, I thought to myself, oh, um, is this just a completely separate A and B story, um, and and there does seem, as you say, a bit of a disconnect between the meta story of Deep Space Nine um, as a whole? That this is one of those kind of oasis episodes, um, a bit like a, a single line on the point of a globe, uh, which is actually the definition of meridian. Um, so it, it it kind of um, it, it it is it is kind of disconnected. You could almost watch this episode. Um, and it not be a Star Trek episode um, hmm. um, because because of the, uh, the lack of connection to the to the greater
1: universe. Yeah, there's there there's certainly some things that we wouldn't get in the narrative, right? Uh, sort of um, Dax's multiple uh, lifetimes and things like that. But uh, you'd probably also need somebody to explain to you what a hollow suite is. But on the other hand, there are there is a, a story that is, is very much, I think, designed to be a standalone. It's not tied into the mythology. It's not tied into even larger narrative arcs in a very, uh, in a very extensive and entangled way, at least. Believe it or not, um,
0: the writers originally came up with this um, idea, especially for the A story, um, from the 1954 musical Brigadoon. Um, Brigadoon was a musical about uh, a, a couple of hunters who were travelling through a woodland area uh, and uh, they discovered a village uh, that uh, comes forward 100 years in time um, every uh, once a year. Uh, and so they kind of um, stumble across this anachronistic village uh, where the people um, spring from one point to another. And so that, that was the original uh, concept um, it, it morphed a lot from that original concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, well, maybe not thankfully, I might have liked to have seen a <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical episode, you know, um, as, as uh, other, other, other franchises have done. But uh, I'm not sure how um,
1: the, the cast might have felt about singing in that way. I'm trying to think whether I, any, any of the major recurring characters on Deep Space Nine are ones that I've heard singing in any capacity. Right. It does sometimes happen. Right. If you watch enough television, go to Broadway or watch theater. Some sometimes actors that, you know, in other contexts actually do have quite, quite impressive singing abilities. And we miss that. Um, I'd certainly I'd certainly be interested to see a Star Trek episode. And yet as somebody whose many interests include things like the Bible and music, when you turn something into a musical episode that's not normally musical, it does things to it that don't always work well, shall we say. Yeah, yep. I
0: mean, th- there is um, um, music and singing incorporated into the later um, episodes of Deep Space Nine when they um, they, they get the holodeck program uh, for Vic Fontaine Uh, and the casino and, and during the, the, that war period. And Avery Brooks does have a quite a a, a good blues jazzy swing kind of voice. He sings an amazing rendition of the best is yet to come uh, later on. Um, And I, I'd have to check, I'd have to check on the notes, but, but, at least Major Kira. I don't know if none a visitor, but definitely Major Kira um, uh, sings um, "Fever" um, uh, in that episode in, in, a, in that um, holodeck um, area as well. Captain,
1: will you join me. The tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started to hum. Still it's a real good bet, the best is yet to come. Okay, it took it took some jogging of my memory to bring that back. I, I was sure I'd heard Avery Brooks, Brooks singing somewhere, and I couldn't place it. And of course, it was actually in, it was in that
0: episode. In in those, yeah, and that, they they go in there a few times, um, and and they do um, that like it. It that, that there's a there's a whole holodeck world, but I guess that's uh, for future um, future episodes to come, because um, I don't think that comes in until season six or seven, even mm. um, with uh, with with Vic Fontaine. Um, so, well, look, let's start with the, uh, the A uh, story. Uh, we've got a story uh, about um, a, a group of people who drift um, between um, a, a state of energy consciousness, um, which seems very alien and different to us, um, and, and a corporeal space. Um, and um, so, a, a very interesting alien. Uh, encounter. Um, they are exploring the Gamma Quadrant, um, and um, yeah. So I guess there's there's something about being caught between worlds, um, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 maybe some of the parables of the the Kingdom of Heaven um, might actually leap out us uh, through that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, and it's it's even interesting to me that you call that you know you categorize that one as the A story. I mean, it's the more interesting dominant story. It's the main story of the episode. And yet, the story involving uh, Kira and the Suite and Quark, you know, and really it's, it's coffee that's just that little bit too hot to be the right temperature to drink that is sort of the starting point. And I think there's some symbolism in that. But to jump into the story that's set on that world meridian, right? I mean, that name is interesting. It's caught in between our universe, our dimension with its corporeal existence, and a dimension of pure thought. And it moves between them. And that in itself is is a fascinating concept, right? Because science fiction, one of the things it does so well is to give us uh, aliens, life, but not as we know it. And that can include beings of pure consciousness, of pure energy, giant amoebas, you name it. And of course, shapeshifters, who can take any form and things of that sort as well. But we don't often get beings that undergo a periodic shift between, say, pure consciousness and corporeal existence. And that's interesting. And the very fact they call their world meridian, it's this line of demarcation between these two universes, and they go back and forth across that, that boundary line. I think capture some of the symbolism of of what this episode explores, right, which is corporeal existence and what's positive about it, what's perhaps not so positive about it, and whether beings like ourselves would be happier just being entirely one or entirely the other.
0: Yeah, and look, I think um especially during this period that we've we've been going through uh in in with covid where we've actually mm. had to really lift um our, our digital selves in order to remain socially connected um uh, there's been a lot of discussion uh in, in churches about whether or not online worship is real worship um about whether or not uh, people we've only ever met online and interestingly you know we've, we've never met in a physical space and right. um you're on one side of the world and i'm on the other side of the world for me it's uh what morning and for you it's going into evening so we we're almost i, I i'd be curious it's one of my uh, my science fiction curiosities to to see whether or not we, we'd be close to being on the same meridian uh from <laughs> one side of the world to the other uh you're in uh, twilight i'm in dawn um and, um, you know, there is that sense in which, well, is this relationship a real yeah. relationship mm-hmm. uh, and, and,
1: and how do we come to terms with that? Yes, and I think one of the things that's just wonderful that I hope we will never uh, never let go of that has been brought to our attention much more so as a result of the pandemic is the way that we can actually connect using the technology that's available to us. And I can think of so many ways that that's happened. I mean, I had, well, let me start with our conversation because if it involved a flight from where I am to where you are in order for this conversation to happen, then I'm guessing this conversation might not be happening, right? Uh, it would be yeah, cost would blow the prohibitive budget completely. to yeah. both of us, right? And yet that's no longer necessary. Uh, Since the pandemic began, I have had a reunion with a cohort of elementary school friends and classmates that would never have had a reunion with in person. I've had a reunion with former students from my current institution, Butler University, who wanted to talk about my recent book. And we could not have gotten everyone together in one place that came to that. I have... Somebody, uh, a couple that have been attending my Sunday school class from uh, the West Coast of the United States, so they're in California. I'm in Indianapolis in Eastern Standard Time. They've been getting up astonishingly early to join us. And even the locals have had better attendance and people have been coming that either didn't come before or have been coming more regularly because even for those who are in the same time zone, getting to the church for 9:30 a.m. right when the actual service proper the worship service started at like 10:45 not a not a thing that they were uh, always uh, able to do or eager to do and so we've been connecting and we see each other face to face right i see my students face to face to an extent that is not always true in the classroom, right? The, the ones who are in the back, sometimes shielded by their laptops and things like that. It's it's not the same, right? Of course, they can turn off their cameras on Zoom and things like that. And so I'm very much a fan. I don't think it's just because I grew up with science fiction, imagining when we'd be able to have video calls and things like that, uh, imagining that technology. I think it really does connect us in ways that we couldn't otherwise or couldn't as easily, couldn't as often, couldn't as affordably. And I hope that we will not uh, stop doing that. I'm sure everyone wants a break from some of the things, you know, the use of Zoom and other things that have just become um, become so much part of life that people might want to rest from them. But once once we've detoxed from Zoom or whatever we might want to say, I hope we keep this up because it, it really does allow us to be Uh, Connected with new people and connected with those who are near and dear to us but are far away more often and in new ways.
0: And there are there are layers to this. I mean, uh, like you know, uh, we talked about how communication. So, you know, when the when the phone was first um, invented, people were actually able to talk to each other over greater distances um, and hear each other's voices. Uh, and and since then we started looking at skype and and ways to do video calls for the purposes of communication yeah. and to wish people a happy birthday and those like um, but but for me uh, you know since uh, I would have to be the late 90s early 2000s um, with the with the beginnings of the internet um, the opportunities for online collaboration both in terms of work and play uh, and certainly um, it's fascinating for me to see that the the play aspect aspect of collaboration online uh, the leaving of of my body behind to actually enter into an avatar and actually um to 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 complete tasks with groups of other people uh playing games like world of warcraft and and the like and even you know minecraft um and um, most recently uh, my family uh, have stayed uh, very well connected during the covid uh, lockdowns uh, here in Australia, by playing a game called Seven Days to Die, where we actually survive a zombie apocalypse. Uh, and it's been reasonably surreal to my son who lives in Tasmania and my dad who lives on the central coast of New South Wales to actually be able to, to shed our bodies, to enter into a new world and to actually decide to confront a different apocalypse than the one we actually found ourselves in, um, was was actually a really um, remarkable
1: experience. Yeah. I don't think too many people were seeking out an, an additional apocalypse to try to confront uh the the interesting
0: thing and I'd have to say just psychologically as a bit of a tangent on that um being able to slay the zombies um being able to build the walls to keep them out um, was was actually a, a lot more felt a lot more productive and positive than actually um being up against an unseen. Uh, a foe that couldn't be stopped or 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 slowed in any way except by staying um, uh, away from each other. Yes, yeah, so let's get back to the episode, shall we? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, this is the problem with two sci-fi theological minds <laughs> is that we can tangent very easily. So, so the question that was at the heart of what we were just talking about was um, what's real? Um, so uh, I guess for me I found myself going, well, um, which of the two realities had a greater level of real? And, and, and that was evident to me in the grief. Uh, so, so there was a loss for, for Cisco and for Bashir um, in, in, in Dax's decision to, to choose to move to, to the other world, to the incorporeal. And it was almost, as you say, when we think about becoming incorporeal, it's often related to us with death. Um, or some kind of transition or ascension, which is one way and permanent. Uh, in this case, it was there was something different
1: happening. Yes, and I think you know one of the things that really interested me, sort of theologically and as a, a person who teaches and researches religious studies, was precisely the way some of the themes of the episode and some of the the, uh, the details focus on you know corporeal versus incorporeal existence. Really do intersect with themes in uh, Christian theology, in you know doctrines of the afterlife and things of that sort. If we think about stories involving you know disembodied or incorporeal existence, uh, not just stories involving you know angels or you know uh, Christian stories about afterlife, the ways that people uh, envisage and imagine heaven, but even stories that feature ghosts and those kinds of they're not usually strictly speaking incorporeal right they may have a sort of ethereal existence you can see through them or things like that but they have something that resembles a body it just like walks through walls and things of that sort we don't seem to be able to tell me if i'm wrong maybe your theological imagination is much more developed and finely honed than mine but we don't seem to be able to really imagine something that we would truly call incorporeal existence, right? We can imagine different kinds of existence, but if there are none of the aspects of our own current existence, location, uh, thought, vision, speech, then we don't really have concepts that will allow us to even imagine that. And so when we imagine the incorporeal, it usually is something that is is a very close uh, facsimile of the corporeal
0: when we talk about angels and even I found myself imagining as you were speaking then um, you know about the uh, the story of the Transfiguration on the mountaintop mm-hmm. um, how do we imagine um, Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus uh, if there were no physical form or they didn't speak in any way how do, would they have been recognized as those entities mm-hmm. um, and um, and what do we you know, and and so sometimes when we talk about, you know, our, 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 our the resurrection, we, we, we kind of go well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll 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 transcend into this new new existence, um, but how will I recognise myself or anyone else in this space? Um, and and uh, I mean, in some ways, it's a bit like the regenerations of Doctor Who. Um, you know, the, 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 when people meet the Doctor again uh, and in those rare times where companions actually come across doctor Who at another point they still are able in some ways to recognize um, even if it takes them a little while there's something ineffable about their character but um, th- there is that sense of um, uh, there's an ineffable quality and it asks a question of identity uh, who am who am I um, in my
1: core if if everything else is stripped away yes it's interesting I was Actually discussing uh, with my Sunday school class, we, we thought we'd get into sort of the mood for Easter, that sort of thing. And immediately the question was, was posed or the, the topic was proposed that we might talk about these stories, right, that we get both in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus isn't recognized, right, yep. after the resurrection, and how to make sense of that is is itself an interesting topic but i think in terms of thinking about corporeal versus incorporeal existence i mean in, an even deeper point of intersection for me is the very notion of resurrection itself right and if you ask a lot of christians a lot of religious people today about the afterlife they'll express in terms of you know well i know or i believe or i hope i will go to heaven when i die it's not I will be raised in the resurrection of the last day. Yep, It's it's not thought of in bodily terms, even in terms of a new bodily. Uh, it might be affirmed in the creeds that they recite. It might be a point of doctrine that they would acknowledge they subscribe to. But when they think about it, when they talk about it, it's more likely to be, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And so yep. it loses or it lacks or at the very least doesn't focus on anything that we might call uh, an embodied existence even if it's a, a very different kind of body and that yeah. that for me made this this episode that i was having trouble placing when you first said we're going to talk about this it made it really come alive to me i was like there there's a theological richness in the potentiality uh, this episode has to talk about these very these very topics uh, I, uh, I want to slip across
0: now into the B story, into the other story now, because yeah. I think I mean, we'll probably zigzag backwards and forwards yeah. between the two, because at first glance, like you said earlier, they don't seem to be linked, but there are these really interesting juxtapositions of linkage along theological lines, because as we've just been talking about who am I, who is the real me, we get this story about Majikira and a holographic Major Kira, Um, and uh, Tyrone. Wanting to acquire uh, a a holographic Kira for his own personal use.
1: Now, what is it you want? I want Major Kira. Kira. What are you going to do with Kira in a holosuite? No, don't tell me. I don't want to know.
0: I mean, there are there are uh, very very creepy, slimy ethics there, and 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 I have to say. Uh I'm a big fan of Jeffrey Coombs who plays quite a number of roles in um the star trek universe uh, and this is his first appearance um and and he does such a great job at making our skin crawl with his his acting in this way um it, uh, how do we own our image like you know like uh um Peter Cushing has continued to play the role of, uh, of, of the Grand Moff in Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, long after he has died. Um, you know, like, you know, so there's all questions around. So it's almost yeah. the flip side of that question about who am I yeah. physically, who am I corporeal? Yeah. Um, if, if someone created a holographic image of me and it ended up with all of the uh, the aspects of Moriarty from Next Generation and the Doctor from Voyager and, and an ability to be sentient. Is, is that a light clone or, you know, and which one is me?
1: Yeah, and there's there's some really interesting uh, episodes of uh, Black Mirror that uh, delve into that, you know, the technology. Uh, what if, you know, a person can make a copy of themselves? You know, is it a copy? Is it the original? That, of course, gets explored on Star Trek as well. But one of the things that Black Mirror has done, uh, because it really is about where our current technological trajectories might take us, mm-hmm. not just in the very distant future, right? You know, centuries from now, Star Trek kind of era, but in the nearer future, and that includes things like seeking to reconstruct someone's persona from you know voice records and uh, their social media activity and profile, and would that be, a, would that be a, a revival, a return of the person? Uh, and I just love the fact that science fiction gets us at kind of every different possible step along that spectrum, right? Because one of the questions that confronts certain concepts of the afterlife at the very least is, yeah, I mean, do you need a body? What is the thing that persists, right? If God were to cre- recreate the person, right? If we cease to exist and then God recreated, and that's what resurrection was. On the one hand, it would seem to be no different than using the transporter in Star Trek, right? You've disappeared there. And then at some point later, it doesn't matter how much later you reappear. But is that a copy of you or is that you? Right. And those questions are deep philosophical ones, right? But science fiction is, is ideally uh, poised to allow us to think and talk about those things in ways that are helpful in exploring them
0: I, I want to explore that a little further, especially in the area of of looking at um, theology um, and and canon um, I, I really enjoyed reading uh, in science uh, fiction and theology or theology and science fiction um, your exploration of the the whole idea of canon. Uh, and that mm-hmm. word gets used in, in both science fiction circles and in the circles of, yeah. of, of, of um, theological or, or religious text. Um, th- there's a sense in which um, this virtual playful space that we're talking about with the holodeck um, allows us to fill in blanks, to ask questions, to push the extremities of parables and stories and um, and, and, and so I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about how, um, how set um, uh, a story is or how much we're allowed to play with it without mm-hmm. actually breaking it. And sometimes it feels heretical
1: to actually play with a, with a, with a biblical story. If it does, I think it, it certainly says something about us and what we've been told to think about those stories and how we've been taught to approach them. On the other hand... In the tradition of rabbinic Judaism, for instance, playing with stories is one of the uh, preferred methods of engaging them and taking them seriously, right? Uh, To take the story of Abraham seriously enough to say, okay, so he argues to save Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but just goes along with it when he's told to sacrifice his son, there's got to be more to this. Let's think about what might, what was going through his mind? What might he have said? Uh, God says, take your only son. Doesn't Abraham say, wait a minute, I have another son. It's like, there are all these details that one can take, can pull at, can explore, can expand on. Yeah. And that whole tradition of you know, Mid- midrash as is known in, in um, the Jewish tradition of retelling the story and, digging into those details is something that I think for most Christians is, is somewhat unfamiliar. It's not the way that the Christian tradition has developed its approach to these stories. And there too, I think science fiction can help us to think about this, right? Because for instance, time travel, right? You said that you're a fan of that uh, genre and those kinds of stories as I am. And Within Star Trek's, um, you know, even without going to Doctor Who or something that's really focused on time travel, the instances of time travel in Star Trek are often wonderful examples of how science fiction allows you to to interact playfully, both with with history, but also with the very stories that are being told. Right? One of my favorite Deep Space Nine episodes is uh, is um, trials and tribulations. It's yep, just fantastic. Just the way they they put the characters from Deep Space Nine into that. Right, that was when the CGI technology was fairly new, but it was just done so well. And I just was I was laughing. I don't know that I've ever laughed so hard at anything in science fiction. It just because it was entertaining. I love that moment at the end when
0: Cisco actually takes the the indulgence to hand Kirk uh, the, the the information <laughs> pad. You know no. that there was a there, there was a playfulness around yeah. that episode where they were yeah. they were they were being temporal archaeologists. They were actually yeah. they had a task to do, but they were actually also uh, experiencing a sense of wonder um, at actually being. And I imagine that when I'm when I'm able to um, to fit my time machine into my DeLorean uh, or <laughs> find a, a police box that works the way I want it to. That, that one of the first things I would love to do is to go back to places of stories that I know. I, I wouldn't want to go to, well, it'd be interesting to go to random spots, but there are specific places that that I would want to go to, to actually observe um, and, and interact.
1: Yes. And uh, I think there are some fascinating uh, science fiction stories that intersect with Christianity precisely in that way. But, uh, I'm not sure if you saw on social media anywhere, but I'll actually be giving a lecture on April 15th about um, Christianity and science fiction. I'm already registered. Oh, okay. But it's because on the one hand, you've got time travel, right? You can go to the past, go to the future. You've got parallel universes. You can see how, you know, in a different, but related, comparable, slightly different universe. You know, what did Christianity do? You can take those timelines that churches seem to like to draw that usually end with one's own denomination finally getting things right and say, okay, but give it another hundred or thousand or ten thousand years. Then what happens? Yeah. And so I think that time travel gives us a chance to do lots of fun things in just in terms of you know mental exploration. And I do actually I've I've written a little bit of science fiction. I've uh, had some uh, story published elsewhere, but also included a few in that book, Theology and Science Fiction. And one of them that I'm, I really think is, well, I'm just particularly happy with how it turned out. Is about time travel, right? What if somebody goes to first century Judea, right, and waits outside a partic- particular tomb in a time machine, a time and space machine, to see if anything interesting happens, right? To essentially verify the resurrection, right? And the resurrection of Jesus yep. is, of course, connected with one of the themes that we've already begun to touch on. And so that question of tangible proof, right? And the the kind of the, the historical, the corporeal aspect of one's faith tradition and whether it is about those corporeal elements or how much of it is really uh, cognitive and incorporeal and could exist as, as a philosophy that is just for beings of pure consciousness Uh, it actually does relate directly to the episode meridian as well i think
0: well that would solve the um the the temporal um prime directive violations if we actually didn't physically go back to have a look that we because one of the big dangers of time travel is actually um the butterfly effect of messing things up um Uh, one of the things I found is that this kind of imaginative play um, I, I found that gamers um, tabletop gamers and computer gamers are much better yeah. at this so games like um, Assassin's Creed um, allow people to travel from one space to another uh, and I've even had um, you know uh, gamers who who have actually sat on that that, that middle point, that meridian point between Christianity and, and, um, and games um, uh, run role-playing events. So one Easter um, we ran a role-playing event using a a game mechanic system called 10 candles, where the players actually all took on the identities of one of the disciples and walked their way through that last um, 24 hours uh, of, of the Easter story. And we did that on a, on a, on a good Friday night. And so um, th- they actually attempted to mount a rescue, um, um, and, um, and and um, and and that that changed the story in some ways. But actually, um, f- interestingly, found themselves trapped in a in in a in a bigger story that actually held them um, from being able to change things too much. Um, so I mean, and and w- at one point in the garden, uh, one of the players without understanding or, or knowing the Easter story, managed to snatch a sword from one of the guards uh, and and made a successful attack using their role-playing role. And so I, as the as the GM running the game, said, oh, well, you you take his ear off and then role-played the situation where Jesus, who was a non-player character, actually put the ear back on. And mm-hmm. it stunned them. They, the, the characters actually, the players all sat there and went, why would he do that? Does he not understand what we're trying to do? Uh, and so, this playfulness allows us to actually gain a new insight and new perspective mm-hmm. on on, um, on on stories that that can sometimes feel like they're corporeally set in stone.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. And I have a, a student who's currently working on the question of yeah, you know, how you role play like biblical stories, and can you do so meaningfully? And are people either do they feel like they're too locked into the mm-hmm. stories they know it? Or you know, does it seem like it doesn't have enough potential for exploration because it seems locked in that way? And oh that that's just fascinating I could talk about that. But I think there too it, it can potentially bring us back to the episode, just because what the disciple, you know, what the attempt to rescue Jesus does is to focus on what we might call a this worldly or a corporeal aim, right? right? a tangible result that can be measured, can be quantified. And I think the episode Meridian, one of the things that's fascinating about it is that there's never a discussion of one of the things that comes up in Star Trek so often, which is we can find you another world that doesn't have this phenomenon, doesn't have this problem, doesn't have this challenging situation, and we'll just move you there, right? And the fact that they talk about the possibility of you know, somebody leaving suggests that that's at least feasible, right? Or at least, you know, maybe it wouldn't have worked in practice, but yeah. they never even talk about it, right? And so it's clear to me that one assumption is that if you have this dual existence where you get to experience pure consciousness and you get to re-emerge and reappear in this universe periodically and enjoy food and enjoy Uh, procreation and enjoy family life and enjoy the sky and climbing trees and the sound of a brook that that actually is preferable to leaving that place or vanishing into complete incorporeality, right? There's this, this balance between the two and there's a sense in which that's that's how we at least think of human existence, right? That we are we are spiritual we are uh, mental, we are emotional. We have these things that seem to at least transcend the bodily, however much they are rooted in our brain and in our body chemistry and things like that. And yet, if we try to imagine a fully disembodied existence, we either can't do it or don't like what we imagine. Yep. Right. Even if it's playing, you know, playing instruments on harps on clouds, it's like, well, first of all, harps, clouds, not incorporeal. Yeah, right? that's it. But on the other hand. It's, it's potentially a very boring existence as we think, well, what do we do if if it doesn't have any of these elements? And yet we we imagine into it some things that actually don't make any more sense as part of something incorporeal, right? Without ears, without fingers, presumably without harps, what would music be, if anything? And the, the people of Meridian, um,
0: they... Um, seem to hold both worlds' intention um, and yeah. and enjoy the best aspects of both. And in fact, yeah. there's a complementary nature. The fact that they they get to eat when they're corporeal makes eating even better. And so they celebrate this with 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 special occasions: first meal, last meal. Uh, and these are special occasions where they actually it accentuates the enjoyment of the corporeal experiences. What's it like, this dimension of yours?
1: It's hard to explain. It's without form. We exist as pure consciousness. And meridian. It becomes non-corporeal as well. But when we return to this dimension, everything is just as we left it. The buildings, the trees, even our bodies.
0: Are you saying that when you return here, it's as if no time has passed?
1: We only age when we're in corporeal form. Sounds like this other dimension has its advantages. Yes, but we always look forward to this existence and its many pleasures.
0: And likewise, um, you know, whilst they're in that time, they talk glowingly. Um, that's probably a very apt word about their experience of being in the in the in the other sense of yeah. of being. And so that they don't they don't begrudge either existence. In fact, it's it, for them. It's actually an integrated existence. It's who they are. Um, and 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 what they do—it's normal for them, uh, even though it seems very—it's—it's—it's it's, it's actually unapproachable for us.
1: Yeah, they savor it, and and food, right? Uh, food and beverage really have this poignant symbolism there. And of course, there's there's food and, uh, and beverage symbolism for Christianity too. Yeah. There, I'm not sure if there's any really deep connection between the two, but within the world of the episode. Right. It starts with Kira ordering coffee that's that little bit too hot. Too hot? A little. Huh. Why don't you specify a lower temperature?
0: No, 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 no. Coffee should be a little too hot to drink right away. Why? It uh, slows down the experience. Gives you time to savor the taste. Ah, yes. Taste. Odo, oh, no. I know you don't need to eat, but did you ever try it anyway? Once. Not long after I was first able to assume the humanoid form. And? And since I don't have taste buds, it was very unsatisfying. Not to mention, messy.
1: Odo asks her, you know, why, why not just order it at the temperature that's drinkable? And she's like, no, no, it's supposed to be this way. Right. Cause then you savor it, you drink it slowly, you draw out the experience and sense perception, right. Taste and, and sensuality and all these things really are woven into the episode, both stories, mm. right. Uh, because the conversation then moves to Odo not having taste buds and yep. really not being able to appreciate food. And then, of course, you get, you know, Tyrone with his uh, his real sensuality that, on the one hand, he's got his own hollow suite and clearly, you know, can't get enough of, you know, of sensu- sen- sensual pleasure. And yet, you know, his demand of Quark is, you know, when I when I see Kira in this hollow suite recreation of her, I have to, you know, I'd better believe she's real, right? yeah as though it's it's trying to satisfy his senses. And yet he says, you know, the, the food at Quark's is abysmal, right? Nothing seems to satisfy him. He yep. comes back from this thing that's supposedly a really good sensual experience and says, oh, it was dull, right? Yep. And so the effort to satisfy oneself, right, just through bodily pleasure, you know, Christianity has, has said this, and people sometimes scoff at it, but when Star Trek says it, some other people would listen that wouldn't listen to a theologian or a preacher saying it. Absolutely. But it's not a satisfying existence. He has a hole he can't fill. Yeah, he has a hole he can't fill, right? And the people of Meridian have this, this fascinating balance point, right, that's summed up in that name of theirs, right? They reemerge and you know, they are they are hungry and they are filled with desire and and want to enjoy what this – type of existence gives them the chance to enjoy that they haven't been able to, but they savor it, right? They just reappeared and it's like, yeah, why don't you join us? Yeah, we're going to enjoy first meal now. Mm -hmm. And so they've made a ritual out of having the first meal after they become corporeal again, but there's no need to rush, right? And we're going to have guests and we take our time with it and then we enjoy the and that kind of balanced existence is one that you know not only Christianity, right, not even only religious schools of thought, but a lot of philosophical and ethical systems say is is ideal, right? That if we if we try to just shut off the biological and the corporeal aspects of ourselves, that's unhealthy, that doesn't lead to good places, but neither does fixating solely on the bodily, right? And that, that balance is, I think, what this episode is all about. Part of
0: the way they celebrate that balance is they do it in community. Um, I think what the mm. incorporeal side offers to them is, is a connectedness um, that our corporeal selves, I mean, potentially the biggest barrier between really connecting with other people is actually the fact that I am physically separated. Um, and there, there are stories of the ch- development of children where they actually will see their own hand when they're when they're very like when they're babies and not recognise that it's that it's that's that's part of them. Yeah. But as we grow, we become yeah. more and more aware of the boundary of who we are and the limits of who we are, and then that becomes a separation between us and other people. Um, whereas if there was no corporeal form, then we could know uh, in, in similar ways to Odo does earlier in the episode when he's able to merge with, um, you know, the great link has aspects of this incorporeality in as well um, for, for the, uh, the
1: founders of the dominion. Yes. And Odo's is an interesting one because yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fluid yes. existence, right? Quite literally in a sense, right? He's able to change his shape, but it's, it's not incorporeal, mm-hmm. but it's not physical in the way that we are. Yep. And so that's, again, why I love science fiction, that it, it allows us to explore those things. But I think there's this, this really profound connection with uh, the fact that Christianity did historically affirm, even if it didn't always do so in practice, and even if a lot of people don't give it much attention in practice, it focused on resurrection, which meant that you couldn't simply say that the creation, the physical world is evil, hmm. And as somebody whose research has intersected with those schools of thought that are uh, sometimes called Gnostic, which said that uh, the material world is the creation of an inferior being who really just botches it. And that's why the world is a mess, right? It explains the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, in a a sense. But it also alienates us from the only existence that we've ever known and says that, what's real what's really really something that none of us has ever experienced and that's possible right in theory but it seems as though you know the, this Christian vision of embodied existence and yet also saying that there's a fallenness and there's the possibility of not of escaping the physical realm but of new creation captures a balance which even if we can't think in the same terms and use in uh, in the same way, language first century people would have there there's an element to that that i regularly say it's important for us to find some way to hold on to because if we lose it i think uh, it can lead us in unhealthy and perhaps dangerous directions
0: yeah and there is that dark side to this conversation i mean as when i was looking at the the two stories today I, i wrote down i like to write columns words to trigger me and and i and i wrote that 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 one of these stories is a story about love um um, and very quickly, Dax um, and uh, Dural fall in love. Um, and and you know, I mean, as as bad as sci-fi often is at writing romance, there's no question about the sincerity of their their feeling of connectedness to each other. Um, and, and the the other story, the B story, is about lust. It's about how do I acquire? How do I? So they're mm-hmm. they're juxtaposed. Um, and then in the B story, we've got this. Uh, we've got. Um, Tyron wants to own, wants to hold, wants to possess, whereas um, Dax and Dural are prepared to sacrifice. They're prepared to give up. They're prepared to let go. Um, and then um, also we've got this space between worlds on Meridian and, and we've got the whole idea of holodeck or CGI, um, what it means to actually draw worlds together. And so I, I found that there were these really fascinating crossovers in this episode um, that actually took the one concept and actually said, "Okay, these are two coins, um, and 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 how they work." Um, so I, I, I wanted to just have. I think probably the only one we haven't really explored then is 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 that that dark side of, of the holodeck CGI. The idea that that um, we could misuse or abuse uh, an image or mm-hmm. or a, or, a, or, a, or a, either a, a, a uh, an incorporeal or corporeal form by actually making use of it in a way that um, it was not
1: intended to or there wasn't permission or consent to use it for. Yes, and I think that's that's something that both uh, Christian ethics and the law uh, will have to wrestle with and deal with and tackle and probably should while it's still fictional because once technology is out there you know the genie is out of the bottle. It's much harder to, uh, to regulate and to uh, put limits. Of course, we see we see we see Quark and others doing things that are not legal. And so, what's legal and what will actually happen uh, will not uh, inevitably be precisely the same thing. But questions like, you know, if somebody has sex with a holographic image or with an android. Is that, you know, I mean, and, and they are married to someone else. Is that adultery? Yep. Right? Uh, it, you can't just look up a page in the Bible and see an answer to that question. Right. No,
0: no.
1: Uh, you can't look up something in somewhere buried in Deuteronomy. And it will tell you, you know, if somebody makes a likeness of you on the hollow deck and does things to that replica of you that you wouldn't want done to yourself. Can you press charges, right? Yeah. Um, th- and th- there are philosophical things that are just you know puzzling, and might even find ourselves as we think about think about them, wishing we would never thought of these yeah, things. Yeah. Because some some of the things, right? Uh, there are several times I think, if I'm not mistaken, in this episode, if I remember correctly, when characters say about things that others do in the holodeck. Uh, never mind. I don't want to I know. I want to know. That's it. <laughs> And that's a recurring theme, and it's not surprising, right? And, of course, some of these things you know, should be private, but if somebody who is a real person, right, you're taking a replica of them and using them for fantasy, with within the imagination, right, people have probably always done that. On the other hand, when there's that element of realism, right, then the same concerns that happen – when we think about people becoming desensitized to violence, if it's all over your games and film and everything else. And the studies are, you know, are a little bit ambiguous about whether that actually becomes a healthy release so that people don't do these things, or it becomes something that leads people to become desensitized and to think that violence is okay because they do it in, in video games all the time. They see it movies all the time. And so it's not as big a deal, or whether it affects different people differently depending on their, their moral convictions that they have before they start um, yeah. doing those things. And so there's, there's a lot we don't know and a lot that we probably don't want to test for in um, direct ways. right? It's like, let's, let's put people through these things and see which of them end up uh, killing other people or becoming you know, engaged in um, illegal sexual activities or something like that. But the technology... If not precisely the hollow deck, then other things uh, will continue to uh, develop that we need to we need to think about, we need to legislate and we need to. Have pastoral advice about the theological perspectives on.
0: One of the things I love about um, about the Bible, um, and part of the reason why I believe it's a living word, um, is that that in some ways Jesus does forecast this stuff. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about you know uh, 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 committing adultery in your heart, um, 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 anger, mm. committing murder in the in the heart, and and so really speaking to this question of what's our intent uh, in the end um do we do we intend to do something which is loving um something that's that's freeing that that helps people to grow and bear fruit um or are we actually attempting to acquire and control and 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 cause um people to be limited um and and certainly um you know tyron fails that 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 test in this we we we, we Regardless of what our morality is, or where it comes from in terms of faith and conviction, um, it's very, very difficult to like this character.
1: Yes, and and we're not supposed yeah. to, right? And it is to the actor's credit that he portrays a character that we can dislike and dislike so thoroughly, and yet can cannot treat as just a, a sort of a cardboard cutout villain, yeah. right? With you know the twirling the mustache and doing evil for it's it's like we see we see lust, you know, sort of taken to its, taken to its end. And uh, we know that that's, that's a possibility. If one doesn't uh, keep oneself in, in control. And one of the things that science fiction can do is raise questions like, you know, well, what if you have beings whose, whose instincts for self-preservation or for procreation are stronger than ours, right? I mean, Vulcans will die if they don't, uh, you know, go get to, uh, you know, get to get to the meeting um, rendezvous on time and things like that. A mutual that. friend will actually, uh, Elizabeth Rain. Uh,
0: we've already um, decided not <laughs> to mention the Ponfar in the Voyager episodes. Um, uh, it will come up uh, in Voyager yeah. as, uh, as 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 yeah. Tuvok finds yeah. himself um, the only Vulcan. Well, not the only Vulcan, but the only male Vulcan in the um, in the Delta Quadrant. Um interestingly, um at the at the end of this, um Jeffrey Coombs, who plays Tyrone, threatens Quark. Quark! I will ruin you for this, Quark.
1: You mean you didn't like the program?
0: I don't know how. I don't know when, but I will ruin you. I, I was a bit disappointed afterwards because I thought to myself, Ah, oh, we never get to see what that looks like, except that when I was reading some of the background, Geoffrey Coombs also plays uh, the Ferengi um, Inspector Brunt, who actually comes to Deep Space Nine <laughs> and bankrupts Quark. May I have your attention, please? Brunt. F-C-A. As of this moment, no further Ferengi commerce may be conducted in this bar. No Ferengi may be employed by this bar. No Ferengi may eat or drink in this bar. And no Ferengi, no Ferengi may do business with that man. Confiscation of assets will begin immediately.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, this bar is closed until further notice. Thank you for your patronage.
0: Uh, and so the actor Jeffrey Coombs, in another incarnation and in a different corporeal form, does return to Deep Space Nine and ruins Quark.
1: I didn't realize that was him. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. That's poetic justice. It's magic. That's isn't it? lovely. Yeah. <laughs> There's a comma there, isn't there? <laughs> there, yeah, there is. There is. Uh, I mean, Star Trek. You know, when it when it does, um, when well, when it does this thing that's done since the original series of depicting men hitting on women. Uh, the original series it tended to be Captain Kirk, but since then it's broadened out. I think oftentimes fans who have become you know more sense sensitized to these things. Uh, I mean, part of it is that when I watched it, I was very young and wasn't attuned to those things at all, but you rewatch the original series now and you're like, Oh my gosh. Oh, you it's, it's, you know, you're cringing and it's, it's painful. And then you watch something like this. And on the one hand, you feel like these female characters are are stronger. And on the other hand, you know, I found myself a little bit disappointed, you know, that we're still in a world, you know, it's, it's, it's far away, you know, it's, it's just a wormhole's throw away from, you know, uh, you know, another quadrant of the galaxy. And yet, you know, a female character is still pretending this male character is her lover in order to get a male that's hitting on her and won't go away to stop and leave her alone. And it's like, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't we be past that Mm. (laughs) when we get that far in the future? And, Yeah, the I like the fact that that was there, right? With with all its creepiness and its you know the uncomfortable aspect of it, because it it makes us ask, okay, how is Durrell different, Mm -hmm. right? Because he's hitting he's hitting on Genzia Dax, and asking, you know, so are those spots decorative? How far down do they go? Yeah, that was creepy at the beginning, wasn't it? It's not exactly it's. It's it, you know it's a little creepy, but this guy you know has been incorporeal for a while, and he has he has desires, and they are emerging. But we get a sense of genuine interest, yep. right? And that's not incompatible with sexual desire and attraction and those kinds of things. But clearly, you know, clearly uh, Tiro doesn't have that, right? Yep. There's no concern for Tyra, uh, for Kira's well being, and we get that from the very. Introduction And that, I think, is important and sets the stage for it. Major Kira, how nice to see you again. Turan. You left Quarks last night just when I was about to buy everyone another
0: round. I was devastated that you didn't say goodbye. And we were having such a pleasant conversation. As I recall, you were the one doing all the talking. Well, in that case, you have me at a disadvantage. You know all about me, and I know next to nothing about you. Uh, perhaps I should be going. Oh, no, stay. Uh, this is Tehran, a business
1: associate of Quarks. This is Odo, my lover. Right, and so we get a sense of something very different. You know, that's not at all mutual and not interested in being mutual. And so there there are some things here that, uh, for all their, uh, for all the ways that they might seem depressing as a vision of the future... Uh, do speak to our present in uh, some interesting absolutely,
0: ways. and and uh, I think one of the big issues between the two is that that sense of mutuality. I mean, uh, I imagine the play yeah. on the, the the story on Meridian would have played out very differently had Jadzia turned to um, to Darrell and said to him, "Well, that's none of your business." Um, you know, I, I, that would have that would have shifted. You know, the, I, it, I'm, I'm not going to tell you where the spots go. You know, like um and certainly that's what kira was saying to Terrell. he was yeah. making make she was making it very clear to him that she was not interested and he was not taking the hint um and there is that interesting subtlety and and i think it is that meridian point um between um how we intuitively pick up the signals from people which is actually not a corporeal thing um um, and, and also mixed in with that, the, the body language, the, 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 so we communicate both as, as beings of thought and spirit and mentally, and we communicate with our, with our bodies as well. And, and so it's, 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 it's really fascinating to stop and actually think about, well, how much of my communication is incorporeal? Um, uh, how much of it is not, um, how does my conversation shift and change when I'm typing text or um, uh, talking on the phone when I'm just a voice? Um, how easy is it to misunderstand someone's intent when they send you a text message? Um, so there's, there's, there's all those kind of questions as well. I'm guessing we could talk for hours on this, um, and um, I would be very, very keen to have you back <laughs> on again um, to, uh, to pick up any one of the themes that will occur in Deep Space Nine into the future. If uh, you'd be happy to come back and have another chat,
1: oh, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I would. This this does seem to me as well as a conversation that's really just getting started. And uh, yeah, I think the challenge will be to to pick an episode to talk about uh, when we have another conversation that won't just pick up where we left off, but will really take us in in some other directions. Um, as fun as it would be to continue this conversation and just have you know part two of Meridian. Well, look, have a look at the
0: latter parts of season three and into season four, and if you spot one that you really, really like, um, then send me a message um, and I'll put you down for it. Um, when um, I do the post for this um, and in the show notes, I'll, I'll put a link to uh, your uh, your lecture, which is coming up um, in April, um, which will be on a Thursday evening your time and a Friday morning our time. Uh, here in Australia, um, and uh, already, I think there is significant interest in uh, attending and and participating in that event uh, from uh, sci-fi lovers and theologians here in Australia.
1: So I've been gathering, and I'm, I'm excited, uh, and I'm already busy collecting, making sure I've got all these uh, clips, hopefully in good enough quality that they will not just do for you know classroom use for a brief you know showing that I sometimes do when I'm teaching on these subjects uh but really will give us a chance to to remind ourselves of some of the details of some stories uh, as well as dig into some of the, the the interesting the interesting content as it intersects with Christianity. Thanks
0: James. Um this has been the Deep Faith Nine podcast. You can find these uh, online on oddrev.com uh where the show notes are held and kept uh, you can also go straight to SoundCloud where um, they're listed as never-odd or even media. Uh, and also uh, have a check out of our uh, Patreon site if you'd like to support us to to uh, continue to boldly go where no one has theologically gone before uh, into some of these conversations. Uh, Patreon is also never-odd or even media. Uh, and uh, this is um, – this is an incorporeal community uh, of people from all over the globe. Um, there are people from um, um, the states, from from the UK, uh, from Brussels and Europe, and and South America, uh, all over the place, who are actually listening to this podcast. And uh, it's exciting for me to think that uh, that uh, there are people who have been listening to us today, uh, who we may never meet, um, but actually uh, have been uh, enjoying us as they drive in their car as they uh, fold their laundry as they go for a jog or a run um, that there's a sense that 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 we have together escaped our uh, incorporeal bodies whilst actually remaining connected to our corporeal selves so so I think we achieved Meridian today James
1: thank you for having me on the show and it's been great talking with you about this episode you're very welcome We'll be back next week um, with
0: uh, the episode. Uh, we'll be having uh, Mulk uh, on, who's a, a well-known uh, uh, um, pastoral worker um, and in the and youth worker in Australia. Uh, Mulk has got. Uh, uh, lots of multimedia connections in his own podcast, and we'll be looking at the episode called The Defiant. Mm-hmm. And we get to see uh, Jonathan Frakes turn up uh, mm-hmm. as, as Will Riker. Or is he. Until then, <laughs> we'll see you next week.